This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. For nearly 40 years, the United Network for Sharing Organs, or UNOS, has controlled the organ transplant system. But that's about to change. Last week, the government announced plans to completely overhaul the system by breaking up the network's multi-decade monopoly. For those who need an organ transplant, the process is far from easy. 17 people die each day awaiting transplants. More than 100,000 people are currently on the transplant waiting list. That's according to the Health Resources and Services Administration. And that number includes some of you. Hi, my name is Robin Flannery. I'm calling from New Orleans, Louisiana. I have stage four cirrhosis caused by NASH. I have been this way for eight years. I have gone through four transplant evaluations. I have watched old white men who are addicted to alcohol get a liver and not me. And I'm suffering and almost dead now. I'm only 59 years old. I've had every decompensation a human can have and have still been denied for no reason. I am almost broke because of this. Healthcare should be a right, not a privilege. Robin, thank you for sharing your story with us. UNOS has been criticized for using faulty technology and mishandling organs in its care. An investigation by the Senate Finance Committee released last year found that the organization lost, discarded, or failed to collect thousands of life-saving organs between 2010 and 2020. Can the government reverse decades of damage by breaking up one group's power? And what does this move mean for those whose lives are on the line? We'll get into those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get into the conversation by introducing our guests. Dr. Seth Karp is the director of the Vanderbilt Transplant Center. He's also a former UNOS board member. 
Jennifer Erickson is a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. That's a nonprofit policy research and advocacy think tank. Her focus is applying data-driven solutions to the organ donation shortage. And also joining us is Lenny Bernstein. He's a health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks to you all for joining us today. Let's start with you, Lenny. How has the United Network for Organ Sharing operated up to this point? Well, there are a a nonprofit organization like any other nonprofit organization. Um, they, uh, but what they have exerted in the transplant uh, system that most nonprofits don't have is a complete monopoly for the past four decades. And when you are a contractor to the United States government, you expect from time to time to be there. There would be some competition for that contract. Others might want to run it. Uh, others might um, want to share in it, uh, but that has never happened um, because of the way the laws are written and because UNOS has been developing this technology over many decades and uh, it considers it to be its own. So the normal uh, functioning of this system has been thrown off over the past 40 years. And what HRSA is seeking to do right now is to reform that. And what technology are you referring to specifically, Lenny? So the whole system rests on uh, a, a, um, a variety of, techno- of different uh, technological systems, but there's uh, technology for getting organs from the hospitals where they are donated to, um, to the hospitals where they would be implanted. There's technology for figuring out who uh, should get those organs first. Um, UNOS is in charge of all of those things. And uh, from time to time, they don't function as well as they should. Um, there are surgeons, and maybe Seth will say this, um, you know, who say that, uh, you know, I know where my meal is. I know where my DoorDash is, but I don't know where my kidney is. Mm-hmm. And uh, that isn't acceptable. That isn't something we, people who need transplants can live with. Jennifer, in your research, what have you found about how this model UNOS uses, how it's affected the quality of the transplant system? It's been a a failure and a disaster for so many patients on the waiting list. Let's look at a study that the federal government itself funded. In the United States, despite 95% of people supporting organ donation, that's something we all agree on as a country, we only recover about one in five potential organ donors. The Washington Post did an analysis. Other folks have done it. The lowest number that we've seen for unrecovered, untransplanted organs every year is 28,000. Think about what that means for people like the caller who you started the show with. And, you know, the reality is that is a lot of UNOS's legacy. People are dying every day and they don't have to be. And UNOS has been the organization in control. Dr. Karp, I'm hoping you can put some of these numbers into perspective for us. Just how many people are affected by organ failure in the U.S. each year? Yeah, so as you said at the beginning of the show, there are more than 100 people, 100, uh, more than 100,000 people waiting on an on the list for organ transplantation. Um, the the cost of that is incalculable. So if you think about the patients that are on dialysis, one of the one of the, the saddest statistics that I know about that is that people on dialysis that are of, of working age, probably less than 25% of them can even work. So these are people that then become non-productive. The emotional toll of that is enormous. And then you have the people that are waiting for non-renal organs. So these would be the liver, 
um, the lungs and the hearts. And they're in a constant struggle every day. They, they don't know, am I going to get an organ? Is nothing going to happen? Or am I going to die? And so the, the human toll of the waiting for organs and the lack of organs is extraordinary. So you said there are 100,000 people currently on the organ transplant waiting list, but that doesn't account for everyone who is in organ failure and may need an organ, but they don't make it onto that waiting list for some reason, correct? That is correct, yeah. So so it's hard to know exactly what that overall number is as to how many people could benefit by transplantation. Um, not all patients that have organ failure could benefit can benefit from transplantation. So if you have liver cancer, for example, that has spread outside your liver and your liver is failing because of the cancer, we could do a transplant, but it would not extend your survival because the tumor has already spread. So to get the number of people in the United States that could potentially benefit from a transplant and compare that to number of of patients on the waiting list, I don't know exactly what that number would be. Maybe it's two times the number that are on waiting lists, something like that. Um, And then you get into the socioeconomic issues around the patients that get to the waiting list. And we know that, for example, where I am in Tennessee, but generally, more generally in the South, the number of patients that could benefit from uh, from transplantation that make it to the list is far less than in wealthier areas like the Northeast of Minnesota, California. And why is that? It's very complicated, but it relates to certainly the ability to get to a transplant center. So if you live in Tennessee, um, we routinely have to think about for our patients about gas cards for, for gas for their, for their to get to our center. Um, maybe they live two or three hours away. Uh, and that's not completely limited to the South, but it tends to be more prevalent in the South. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the general quality of care in certain states and certain areas is not as good in other states. Uh, there may be uh, people that are taking care of patients that could benefit from an organ transplant that don't know, don't appreciate that. Um, and then there may be family issues and family resources. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States, every patient has to pass a test in order to get an organ transplant that they have the support uh, from their family or from their community that they can take care of this organ. And it's harder for patients in poor or rural communities to meet that test. So it's, it's multifactorial, very complicated. But of course, you, your, your question gets to the heart of some very, very important social issues that we have in the United States. Well, that echoes a message we got from Chris in Oklahoma. My kidneys failed December 2017, and I've been trying to get on the transplant list since that happened. I live in the Oklahoma City area due to a job move. I have no friends and family down here. How do you handle a situation like that? Chris, thanks for that message. I mean, Jennifer, I'm sure you hear these stories as you're engaged in your research. How are people navigating some of the requirements that can prevent them from getting on the transplant list? Well, we've we've put a lot of patients in a really terrible situation. Uh, you know, the New York Times also covered patient stories about folks, uh, and I'm sure Lenny's seen this too, who get on wait lists across the country just to try and increase their odds. We uh, put people in terrible situations. There was another executive in the field who said, we've turned the waiting list into the Hunger Games, a deadly arena of our own making. I mean, the reality is, again, if you go back to unrecovered organs, which the Washington Post and Lenny have covered so well, I mean, there just should be thousands more patients every year who are getting these life-saving transplants. And that brings us back to the really critical reforms that were announced last week. You know, the government has listened to bipartisan congressional investigations and said the status quo isn't good enough and it has to change. And that's going to change with a first-ever competitive cycle and some new entrants who can do 
different things for patients. Well, Lenny, explain briefly some of the changes that, that are going to go into place. There are quite a few proposed changes, but the critical one is to put out for bid a number of contracts that would cover pieces of the system that UNOS currently controls. Uh, They did not specify for us exactly what those contracts will be, and they're um, probably because they're still working on them, excuse me, they go out in the fall. Uh, But the critical one is, of course, the technology. Um, Because UNOS has been so poor at operating the system, the government appears to want someone else to do that. And so that will be the contract that uh, most people in the transplant community will be looking at uh, most closely. How is the government going to arrange a fair competition between others who are interested in that contract and UNOS, which currently holds it? How did UNOS get control over the system in the first place? When they uh, started up the transplant system back in 1984 under the um, Organ Transplant Act, it was written with a sort of nascent nonprofit organization that was already beginning to coordinate uh, the system on its own. The law was written with that organization in mind. That organization is UNOS, became UNOS in 1986. And ever since, UNOS has had an advantage in the uh, bidding for the contracts to come up every four or five years. And UNOS always has won, usually without any competition. I'm not sure there's ever been any competition. Um, So that is what the government is seeking to rectify right now, to create a competition that outsiders feel they have a legitimate shot at winning so that they will bid and they will provide other ideas and, and competition to UNOS. Jennifer, do you think it's enough for the government to break up UNOS's monopoly in the organ transplant sp- space, or does something more need to happen? Well, breaking it up is a really critical step. And as Lenny said, making sure that the best of the best top innovators in technology and logistics and in the other areas in which UNOS currently operates come to the table. And, you know, another thing that I'm just so grateful for Uh, with Lenny's reporting, is we also have to shine a light on what has already happened. You know, UNOS's track record is available to look at, and it is appalling. Just last month, Lenny covered that the technology matching system, how do you figure out that there is a heart available with an A-positive blood type in one part of the country, and how do you get it to another part of the country? That entire system was down for almost an hour, meaning organs could not be matched, across the United States. Not only that, it wasn't the first time that that's happened. The United States Digital Service, who are top technologists out of the White House Office of Management and Budget, did an audit of UNOS technology and found it antiquated. They found system outages and downtime. They found all sorts of problems. And the fact that this is happening in the United States in 2023, when lives are on the line, is just completely unacceptable. So yes, we have to break up the monopoly. Yes, we have to get great people to come to the table. And we also have to have a really clear-eyed accounting of the tragedies and the failures that have happened on Eunice's watch because of these failures. 
We got this email from Mark who says, I was a clinical laboratory scientist in an organ transplant lab for nine years. UNOS uses a complicated algorithm to generate a list of the top potential recipients for each organ based on compatibility and need. In my final years, surgeons almost never selected patients from even the top 10 patients. So, Dr. Carp, I want us to take a step back. Walk us through the process of receiving an organ transplant, starting with that first diagnosis that you you need an organ. Sure. So, so patients typically will present either to their primary care physician or to an emergency department with some symptoms. Uh, it might be shortness of breath. It might be swelling in the abdomen. Um, as the workup continues, that patient will be found to have some type of organ failure. Uh, and then that patient will, will be referred to a transplant center. At the transplant center, then there's a process which involves looking, meeting the physicians and meeting the surgeons uh, to help determine whether or not the patient can benefit from an organ transplant. Once that determination is made by the treating physicians, that then goes to a committee. And that committee then decides whether or not organ transplant is in the best interest of that patient. At that point, then, if that answer is, so that decision will either be no, we cannot help this patient with an organ transplant, or that we need additional information, in which case that would generate additional testing, or that patient would be listed for a transplant. And then if the patient is listed, then it becomes a waiting process. And for some patients, that waiting process can be a few hours. And for other patients, as we've heard on the call, that can be many, many years. Lenny, we've mentioned the organ shortage. And as we said earlier, um, the the study from the the government said, you know, mishandled or misplaced thousands of organs. Even if we control for those organs, are there enough organs for people who need them? Well, that's a really terrific question. Um, Different analyses have said that there are could be a significant reduction in the waiting list in a very short period of time, including uh, the one we did back in 2019. So you may not be able to clear the waiting list, you know, in a year or two or three or five once the system is reformed. But if the organ procurement, procurement organizations were operating at peak efficiency, if surgeons were operating at peak efficiency and putting in organs that perhaps um, were uh, um, a little bit more marginal, if other changes were made, you could make tremendous progress. Um, I'm I'm going deep back in my memory. I think only 1% of deaths in this country qualify to be donors, but that's still a very large number of organs. We got this email from NOSA who says transplant centers need to be held accountable too. They also contribute to the discarding of organs. They will decline organs because they don't want a marginal organ and don't want to have a potential bad outcome that would affect their numbers. Dr. Karp, how are organs graded? What makes an organ marginal? Different organs have different characteristics that might make them higher risk. We we choose a... I prefer the term higher risk, higher risk of failing over time. And it depends on their current function. It depends on the characteristics of the donor. For example, in general, uh, I'm getting older. It's hard to say this, but older organs generally aren't as good. Um, younger organs are better. Uh, patients that have high blood pressure, those organs generally are not, not quite as good. A kidney that 
is not a perfectly functioning kidney, won't be as good as a kidney in the donor that's functioning perfectly. And every time an organ gets offered, the surgeon has to, and the, and the physician, depending on who's making that decision, has to look at the donor and then has to look at the recipient. So I've used, I've used livers that have been uh, from patients in their 80s, but I will tell you that that 80-year-old liver would not be good for every single patient on the list. It would only be good for certain patients because that liver is not going to work very well at the very beginning of after I put it in. And there are certain patients that that will be fine. And there are other patients that they will die if that liver doesn't work immediately. So what we try to do as surgeons and as physicians is we try to balance and choose the right organ for the right patient. Jennifer, one of your friends passed away in December while waiting for a kidney transplant. Your father also passed away two years ago while on the transplant waiting list. What did you see your loved ones experience while trying to negotiate this system? Oh, gosh. It's, uh, again, what we put people through is really horrific. If you've seen a loved one with organ failure, um, it's it's an awful way to live. It's an awful way to die. Um, so, the, the central problem, I mean, of course, we should have better information. Of course, we should have clearer pathways to people. But, you know, it really comes back to this organ availability. What patients need is to get a phone call that an organ is available for them. And we may pe- make people wait so long. I mean, Lenny talked about this. We make people wait until they are too sick to transplant. And, and that's a, a really, really horrific reality. And so I, I want to say, you know, really call in the United States Congress, who's done amazing work on a bipartisan basis in this. They issued report findings last August. And this is a quote. They said, from the top down, the U.S. transplant network is not working, putting Americans' lives at risk. This is from the Senate Finance Committee. It's done a three-year investigation of UNOS failures. They've looked at how we make patients wait. They've looked at uh, patient safety oversight when um, people get organs that, that should not have been transplanted. And again, the central biggest problem is organs that are never recovered at all. Just one Uh, or mishandled along the way. One statistic that both Senators Chuck Grassley and Elizabeth Warren have cited is UNOS is 15 times more likely to lose an organ in transit than an airline is a suitcase. Now, back to your question, Jen. Imagine you're one of the 100,000 Americans waiting for an organ transplant, and you hear they're being lost in American airports or mishandled as they travel across the country. It's, It's really terrible what we put people through. Well, we reached out to the Health Resources and Service Administration for this conversation. That's the agency leading uh, the breakup of Unosis Monopoly. They declined to join our conversation. Here's another message we got from one of you. I'm calling regarding the wait list for organ transplants. My spouse was put on one at UCSF in San Francisco when he was 50. He was president of a small software company highly educated, graduate of MIT and Harvard, and did everything as he was told to us waiting for this organ transplant. When he was 60, he was told he was too old and possibly maybe too ill to receive an organ transplant, even though a family member was willing to donate. He died a year later. I truly believe sometimes people that are of color are potentially discriminated against. Jennifer, how does racial inequity show up in the transplant system? 
in a few ways. First of all, you're more likely to need an organ transplant if you're a person of color and you're less likely to get one for a variety of reasons. Seth talked about some of them. But just to give one other example about organs that are not recovered, you know, UNOS oversees the national system, but part of what it's supposed to do um, is help manage a network of 56 local organ procurement organizations that are supposed to show up to every organ donation eligible case every time. Now, some of those organ procurement organizations do a great job, but we know from the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services that the majority of them, more than half, do not and are failing to meet federal standards. And just one way that that's shown up is Senator Cory Booker and members of the Congressional Black Caucus wrote a letter citing previous research uh, that shows there is a tenfold difference in recovery of black donors across the country. Now, I don't believe for a second that there's a tenfold difference in generosity of black Americans across the country. What we find when we look at the data is that a lot of people are treated differently. And the problem if you treat black donor families differently, not only is that massively disrespectful to them, but also it constrains organ supply and same ethnicity matches are more likely. So if an organ procurement organization is not equitably treating black donor families, that is absolutely hurting black patients on the organ waiting list. And that's another one of the iniquities that people have pointed out to that have happened on UNOS's watch. Well, Dr. Karp, according to the Journal of the American Heart Association, African-Americans are less likely to receive a heart transplant than white Americans. They also have a higher risk of post-transplant death. And these racial disparities in transplantation are also seen with other organs too, like kidneys. What's driving not just the access disparity, but also the recovery disparity? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and it's a it's a very important question. Um, I don't have a good answer for you, but it's something that we need to look at very, very carefully, um, and we need to do this at a national level. One of the questions that had come up is around um, how do we how do we know that the system is equitable? And in fact, UNOS made a policy decision a couple of years ago that they were only going to look at equity through the lens of people that have already been listed for a transplant. Well, as Jennifer said, and as you had said in the beginning, this is crazy. This is this was um, uh, shocking to many of us to say, well, equity in the system means once you, you know, once you are already on the list, that things have to be equal. Well, what about getting people to the list? That is a that's a huge source of inequity, and UNOS has made that decision not to even even look at that. And so the 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 reasons for the post transplant survival being different. Uh, relates certainly to underlying disease. It may relate to socioeconomics. It may relate to previous history of disease. Uh, it's something we need to learn a lot more about and something that we need to pay a lot of attention to. I want to mention we also reached out to UNOS for a statement. Here's part of what they sent. UNOS supports HRSA's plan to introduce additional reforms into the nation's organ donation and transplantation system. We also stand united with HRSA and our shared goal to get as many donor organs as possible to the patients in need while increasing accountability, transparency, and oversight. You know, Dr. Karp, you were formally on the UNOS board you tried to raise some of these issues inside the organization. What happened when you did? Uh, I was labeled an outcast. Um, I was labeled as hostile. I was trying to have you know focus on the most important point, and we've had a, a terrific discussion up to now. I want to reiterate the problem here is that we don't have enough organs. Everything else gets better if we don't have if we would have more organs. 
there were 8,000 uh, liver transplants done in the United States last year, approximately. 2,500 people died on the waiting list or were too sick. And so if we think about that in context, if we could increase the organ supply of livers by 30%, we could basically end deaths on the waiting list. Study after study after study has shown that we could get twice as many organs, uh, easily twice as many organs as we have, and that would eliminate the waiting list and, and people wouldn't die. That's the problem that I was trying to get UNOS to, to tackle, and quite frankly, they ignored that. And that is the central problem uh, of transplantation, and that's what needs attention. We'll be back with more of our conversation after this quick break. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. Now, let's get back to our discussion about the government's plans to overhaul the organ transplant system and what this means for those whose lives are on the line. You know, Lenny... In December, disturbing emails about the disparities in the transplant system from executives at UNOS were made public as uh, as part of a um, investigation into their practices. And I just want to read one email from 2017. The head of the organization that collects organs in New England wrote to the UNOS executive director, quote, the fact that some states do better than others in preventing preventable deaths and providing health care insurance coverage and access means you're a dumb expletive for living there and should immediately write your legislators that you want better social infrastructures, end quote. And, and this came out of a lawsuit against UNOS. How did UNOS respond to this email and, and what was released to the public? Well, they didn't respond uh, very much at all. Uh, the OPO executive who wrote that um, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, uh, it was a, a, an exchange between an OPO executive and um, the former executive director of UNOS. Uh, I'm trying to remember whether he wrote it or she wrote it, but uh, they both uh, said, "Look, this was a a flippant uh, conversation between you know privately between two people um, involved in this uh, in this system." Um, the point I think your listeners should take away is that there is no denying that transplant favors the affluent. Um, if, if people know one thing about organ transplantation, it's that Steve Jobs, who lives in Northern California, got his transplant in Tennessee. How? He has private insurance. He has a private jet. He can list himself at a number of transplant centers and guarantee that when the organ becomes available, he will get there. If you are a poor person on Medicaid in Alabama or Tennessee uh, where Seth works, 
you've got that one transplant center. You can't even leave the state because your Medicaid won't pay for your transplant out of state. So the point they were making in those emails is let's be plain here. If you have resources, you will do better in the transplant game. And when you're talking about life-saving organs, that's not fair. Well, as I said, you know, sent us a statement saying they support HRSA's plan to introduce additional reforms into the nation's organ donation and transplantation system. But I just want to be clear, Lenny, do these reforms mean that UNOS will no longer be a part of that system? We don't know. That's, uh, that's the great unknown here. Um, it, UNOS will almost certainly bid on these contracts. Uh, they have 37 years of experience that they, the positive sides of it that they will point to. Um, what HRSA and the government plan to do is not clear yet. But imagine if five different contracts go to five different nonprofits, one of which is UNOS, which has lost then four fifths of its empire. I don't know how this is going to play out. These are all, this is hypothetical. But would you want to be trying to coordinate with the legacy group that used to run the whole thing and you've got this part of it? Maybe that'll work great, but we just don't know yet. Jennifer, as someone who's looking at data-driven solutions to this issue, what are you concerned about around the bidding process and, and who all may be a part of the organ transplant system? I'm incredibly excited about the bidding process. I think, you know, if we look at breaking up these functions, things like logistics, things like health policy, things like health IT infrastructure, there are excellent best-in-class organizations that do these functions in other places. It's just they haven't been allowed to do it in transplant because there's been this one monopoly Frankenstein contract that had pulled all these things together. So yes, UNOS has experience in each of these. Its experience is poor. We've talked about some of that. The Senate Finance Committee issued a report card that was damning. So I'm actually really excited about what happens when folks come to the table. You know, you you look at these different functions, and just because you're great at logistics, that doesn't mean you're the health policy expert, right? Those are those are different things. And so I think it's a really exciting time for patients. I am incredibly grateful to the administration for taking this step, to Congress for doing these investigations. And I think that what we're going to see is an end of this decades-long complacency because only one entity has ever run the table. They're the only organization, Jen, that's ever even applied because the contracting cycles have been so restrictive. So I am really excited about what happens when the best of the best can come solve these problems. Lenny, what are we talking about from a timeline perspective? Again, it's largely unknown. The contracts uh, should go out this fall, at least some of them at, at the beginning. I don't know what kind of a time frame um, HRSA is going to put on those, but let's say for the sake of discussion that the different contracts that um, Jennifer just just described uh, attract multiple donors each. 
and as she said, hopefully the best of the best in their businesses. Then the government will need to evaluate them, and then they will hold a, a competition, and they will award the contracts. Then whoever wins will need to get their portion of the system up and running. All of this occurring while the plane is still flying, you know, this, this transplant system has to operate 24-7, 365. So while you are tinkering with the plane and hopefully making it much, much better than it is today, it still needs to keep working every single day. Well, I want to get to some more voice messages that we received. This is Glinda in Texas. I live in Texas and got a kidney transplant in 2017. I did something called the SWAP program where they have a donor. My donor didn't match, but my donor goes, kidney goes to someone else and they find one for me. It's a great program, but I don't understand why there isn't more promotions of this program. Dr. Karp, can you tell us more about the program Glinda's referring to? Yeah, so it's a wonderful program, as she had suggested, and it allows people that come with donors that they don't match with to switch with another pair of people that that, uh, they don't match either. And so from two non-matches, you get two matches. Uh, And there are national programs that are going on, and those programs are – so there are centers – that do them uh, by themselves, they do them internally, and then there are national organizations that manage these swap programs, and they're very successful, and they're continuing to grow, and I agree completely with the caller that we need to continue to expand those programs. Here's another message we got from Harvey. I'm a two-time kidney transplant recipient, and one of the challenges that people have who need a kidney transplant is that they need help getting the word out. This is something that people hear about their need They make a connection with the individual who is in need, and then they offer to donate. Much like looking for employment, you need to share your story so others will hear about it. This connection, obviously, is more important because it's life-saving. Harvey, thanks for that message. But we also got this email from Roberta who says, Our neighbor's 49-year-old daughter just died from kidney disease after years of hoping for a kidney transplant. She was registered at the University of Michigan for a transplant. Our neighbor and her daughter went to great lengths begging for a kidney. The mother drove around with a sign on her car window with information asking people to donate a kidney and contact the university. It was heartbreaking. I just have to say, Dr. Karp, just the idea of of people having to solicit strangers for this kind of help it it's it's stunning it's and it is heartbreaking as a physician who's working in this space I, I, what does it say to you about where we are as a country and our medical system that these are the lengths people have to go to for life saving care it is. You're right. It's heartbreaking. 200 patients in our center alone died last year waiting for an organ. Um, I appreciate this call. I appreciate your getting the word out about this. And these things are incredibly important to find donors, uh, live donors, but then also deceased donors. And really what we're talking about, um, the theme through this entire conversation is we need more donors. They are out there. And you asked a question earlier, do we have enough? You asked Lenny a question, do we have enough organs for those that need them? And for for uh, most of the organ systems, I think the answer is an emphatic yes. We've got to get out there. We've got to recover more organs, uh, and we've got to use them for our patients. That is possible, and that is how the system must be reformed. That is the single thing that we must do that's going to make everything much better. 
Yeah, Jennifer, your father dying from organ failure and your, your friend as well, this really deepened your commitment to this cause. What do you want people to take away from this conversation? I think two things are really important. One, it is horrifying, but important to realize how many parts of the system are broken. But then the other side of that is that they are fixable. You know, I have a lot of colleagues working in other areas of healthcare, and I'm so glad they're doing it. And I don't know what the answer is to some really wrecking diseases. And I'm grateful for the researchers and the healthcare workers that are working on those. As Seth said, when we're talking about the organ waiting list, we know what the cure is. It's organ transplants. We know we're not recovering enough organs. Why? Because the federal government hasn't required the accountability to the date of the people it has appointed, of the organizations it has appointed, and we all pay as taxpayers to do the job. So as horrifying as that reality is, the good news is it is fixable. And the prize will be tens of thousands of our neighbors who are alive every year. Jennifer, I just want to circle back to the equity piece we discussed earlier. And specifically when we're talking about access and a survival rates and what are the big questions we need to ask ourselves about how to make sure more people equitably have access to this care and, and have a higher rate of survival afterwards? I think, you know, again, so much of that starts with data and transparency. Um, we should have a lot more sunlight than we do in the system. And I, I give the Biden administration credit uh, for a commitment to release more data. Bipartisan members of Congress are calling for more data still, and they're right. You know, if you look at the organ procurement piece, that's where it all starts, right? The top of the funnel, the organ supply chain. The United States is the only country with a mature transplant system in the world where we don't have transparency on every step of the process. We can see the end was an organ actually transplanted and what happened to that patient, but we can't see were hospitals making referrals? Did the local contractors show up in a timely way? Did they show up in an equitable way with the same time responses for urban or rural hospitals, for patients of color and white patients? We should be able to see all of those data because that will tell us where in the process we are missing potential organs. And that is the single most important thing, as Seth said, recovering those organs that will help people on the waiting list. So do we have enough daylight on this issue? Lenny, that brings me to you as someone covering uh, this system. What's next in your reporting? What will you be watching? Uh, I will be watching how the government's proposed reforms roll out and whether, as Jennifer just said, we get transparency into that process that it really is a competitive process, that the best and the brightest actually apply for this. And then, Jen, I will be watching over the next few years whether that waiting list goes down. Uh, that's the bottom line, and I would really like to see that happen in the next few years to show that the system is being fixed. 
That's Lenny Bernstein. He's a health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post. Also with us, Jennifer Erickson, a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists. That's a nonprofit policy research and advocacy think tank. Her focus is applying data-driven solutions to the organ donation shortage. And Dr. Seth Karp. He's the director of the Vanderbilt Transplant Center. He's also a former board member of the United Network for Organ Sharing. Dr. Karp, Jennifer, Lenny, thank you for your time. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas. We've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR.